Now it's so easy to sing a verse in a song and not stop to think what the words say. And verse 3. What grace it was the day he called me. Do you understand what calling means? God calls every individual sinner that he's going to save. He calls them personally. There's a day in their life when they come to realize that they are a lost sinner. Now, they don't come to that point apart from God quickening their spirit, quickening that soul which was dead in trespasses and sins. That's scripture. But that's what calling is. And then he says, And the burden of my sin did meet. Now, sin is a burden. Sin, when the Lord convicts you of it, drives you moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. You can't get rid of it. You hate it. You hate your very nature. It drives you like like you drive a team of wild horses. And then it says, And when he taught me how to beg for mercy. You see, God, first of all, points you to the law. He shows you that you're a lawbreaker and that you justly deserve the punishment of breaking his law. The law says the soul that sinneth it shall die, so you're a condemned sinner. But God also, by the gospel, shows you where mercy comes from. It comes through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He taught me how to beg for mercy. That's not natural. How many people do you know that even profess to be saved, to be a church member, have ever begged for mercy. You see, that's only characteristic of those that Christ died for. There's a very few. They beg for mercy because they know they need it, desperately need it, and you don't quit begging. And he says, as I lay there trembling at his feet. We see God saves that kind of a sinner. That's why I say, the words in here are super great. Brother Hale preaches to us every time we sing. I want you to turn this morning to Romans 8, the 8th chapter of Romans. Romans is a magnificent book. I know uh, I have Tyndall's New Testament. Now, Tyndall is the very first Englishman to translate the Bible into English. Nobody else did that before Tyndall. He has a prologue or an introduction to the book of Romans that's 32 pages long. How about that? Well, 31 of those pages was written by Martin Luther. It was so good that Tyndall could not improve upon it only to put a minor five-paragraph ending on the prologue, and it's all in Tyndall's Bible. Well, let's read verses 1 through 8, okay? Chapter 8 of Romans. Now, there's therefore now 
No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free. We talked about that last week. From the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's bow our heads. Father, a portion from a precious portion of thy word. Oh, I guess no matter where we would read, we could preach, and it's still precious. But there's a lesson in here this morning that we all need to hear again and to learn. The enmity of the carnal mind or the natural, normal human being. We ask you to teach our hearts this morning by thy spirit, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, take another look at verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, and neither indeed can be. Now, of all the doctrines in God's word, and by doctrines we mean truths that are necessary for us to learn for our eternal benefit, there was one that is most offensive, and that's offensive to dignified, educated men. We're sitting on it today. It's a basic, general teaching from God's Word on the total depravity of the human heart. It's a spiritual truth and therefore is thought to be foolishness by the natural man. Where is that in the scripture? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. If you can't find it with me, just listen or jot them down if you can. You've got a pencil and a paper. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. That natural man is the person across the street, next door, the one you work for, down at the bank, in the mall. All normal people are natural men. And by nature, you do not understand spiritual things. For they are foolishness unto him. And neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's God's business to teach the human heart, spiritual things. Now, the natural man has little or no use for God's word, so in most cases never even comes in contact with his truth. All the writings, studyings, and findings of men on the subject of human nature are just the opposite and contrary to God's word. Though there are variations of thought concerning heredity and environment, they all conclude that there is good in all men if you can just get it to the surface. 
And the good they're talking about are characteristics in people that you train into them, like being polite, being kind, sharing, and respecting others. You know, people don't even teach their kids manners at the table anymore. School people do not teach the children to be polite. Many, many years ago, when we took our kids up to Michigan, when I had a job up there and they went to school for a year, our kids were taught to say, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. They did that at school about two days, and the teacher told them, you don't have to say that. Everybody made fun of them. Can you imagine? That's a long time ago. Things have come down the tube a long way since then. Now, those things aren't natural to most children, so like I said, they must be taught. They've got to be taught to kids, and they've got to be taught to adults if the adults don't know it. So until you run into the Bible and have it scrutinize your life, you hold to those things that you've been taught. You might be thinking right now, how can the Bible have any effect on a person's life? Well, I'm going to read you Hebrews 4.12. I'll show you how it has an effect. Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is quick, meaning it's living, powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's more like a laser beam piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, you see, a sword can divide between joints and marrow. But only God's Word can discern between your thoughts and the intents of your mind, which is much deeper than just where your joints and marrow are. This describes the potential of God's Word to your heart. Why do I say potential? Because the Word of God must be accompanied by God's Holy Spirit to accomplish the work. Otherwise, people can read it from the day they're born to the day they die, and it won't do them any good, apart from God's Spirit teaching your heart. As you read, you had better ask God for understanding. Turn to John 16, 13. John 16, 13. How be it? When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. That's prophecy. But verse, the first line in verse 14, He shall glorify me. 1 Corinthians 2.10, I'll read that to you also. 1 Corinthians 2.10 tells you that we're taught by God's Holy Spirit. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now, when we say... We're taught of God's Spirit. That's not bragging. It is only saying that God has, out of his heart of love, taught us things by his Spirit that we would have never understood by our own natural thinking and reasoning. And that brings us to our verse in Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity 
against God. You see, because it's coming from God's Word, it's a statement of fact. It's not something I'm making up and putting into the sermon. I just read you God's Word. Now, whether you have ever heard that before, or if you don't understand it, or if you just don't believe it, I want to tell you it's a basic truth from the only true source of truth, and as far as being good for you, you can even take this one to the bank. Paul even gives one of the reasons in the same breath. He said, for it is not subject unto the law of God. Your natural heart isn't. Your natural heart may not ever have even heard of the law of God. And when it does, it just fluffs it off as if to say, that's not for me. Now, by the carnal mind, is meant the, the rational powers corrupted by our sensual appetite and disposed to obey it, or a mind deceived by the flesh and enslaved by it. It's called in, Ro in Colossians 2.18, a fleshly mind. Colossians 2.18, I'll read it to you. I want you to know that everything I say is documented in God's Word. 2.18 Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. You see, people can bring you all kinds of discourses, even into getting you to worship angels. That's not it. No, that's not it at all. It's a, there's a fleshly mind, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. James 3.15 describes the wisdom of the flesh. Let me see what James 3.15 says. James 3.15. It says, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly sensual, devilish, for where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, everything in the world is condemned by John the Apostle. That's in 1 John 2.16, way in the back of the Bible. 1 John 2.16. And it's put into three categories. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, there's one. The lust of the eyes, there's two. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, enmity is a strange word to use, for it rules out reconciliation. A person at enmity with you cannot be reconciled. An enemy may be reconciled, but enmity cannot. This expression is used to highlight how totally opposite to the will of God are our desires, affections, inclinations, and actions. We love what he hates, and we hate what he loves. 
Is it possible that among men a glorious creation of God that there should be found haters of God and he's the creator of the very haters? The scriptures expressly declare that there are haters of God. Look at Romans 1.30. Romans 1.30 Let me read verse 29, too, because it kind of tells you about... Uh, let's read verse 28. All of this is good instruction and good stuff for you to remember and where it is. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... Who is he talking about? All those weirdos in verse 27, 26, and 25. Homosexuals. That's what we just got through talking about up there. That's what he did. He says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, here it is, haters of God, deceitful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. How much more corrupt could a heart be? Where do you find these haters of God? Deep in the jungle somewhere? No, they're close at hand. All those that walk contrary to him. Colossians 1.21 Colossians 1.21 says, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now, love and hate to God is quite a different matter than our love and hate toward fellow beings. You might know a person but not like him too much, but we don't say we hate him. You might not even know a person, and being a stranger, you aren't accused of hating this person. But God plays by another set of rules, for his thoughts are not our thoughts, and our thoughts are not his thoughts. And I want to show that to you in the scripture, so you make no mistake. Isaiah 55, 8. Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Now, what makes, how does the scripture describe our thoughts and God's thoughts? Well, first of all, turn to Matthew 12, 30. And we're going to see that there's no neutral ground. Matthew 12, 30. A lot of folks think that by taking the middle ground, 
Don't decide for this and don't decide for that. Just play it up the middle. You can't do that in religion. Matthew 12, 30 says, He that is not with me is against me, and he that scattereth not with me scattereth abroad. Uh, in John three eighteen, if you just merely don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're condemned. John three eighteen. We make a whole bunch of laws and rules and tell you that if you don't do this or if you do that, then you get such and such. But the Bible is so clear and precise, you know, there's, there's no way you cannot understand it. Any person on the face of the earth that does not know, which means believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, is condemned already. They are on condemnation row awaiting execution. When they quit breathing, they immediately bust hell wide open. And people don't like to think about that. They don't like to hear that. And when you go to a funeral home, the only thing you ever hear is, now they're not suffering. Now they're in a better place. I have known very, very, very few that are in a better place. And I've been to a lot of wakes. And I just have to stand there and grin and bear it. Grit your teeth. Yeah, they're in a better place. They are now a believer. They are now understanding the truth that they rejected, that there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. John 3.18, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. You got it? Condemned already. Who condemns you? God's justice has. God condemns you. His word condemns you. Because he hath not believed in the only in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Alright. Now first John two fifteen says that just to love the world means that God does not love you. First John two fifteen, we were there close by a minute ago. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, any man. I mean, I don't care what kind of a profession you have. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, how much further can this thing go? Well, I want to tell you. Not even your love for your mom and your dad is to come before the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew 10, 37. Matthew 10, 37. People have the mistaken idea that God can be thought of and cared for on Sunday morning and at Christmas time and at Easter time, but everybody else in the family comes first. It's not what the Bible teaches. Look at verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You want to go a little bit deeper? And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, the gospel isn't too easy, is it? In fact, it's quite offensive. 
You have got to set your heart and affections upon the Lord Jesus Christ and seek him only. It's not that you're to hate anything or anybody, but you're not to let them be a stumbling block to you getting to Christ. Now, because men love the world and the things of the world much more than God, means they hate him and are enemies to him. All carnal men are guilty of this as they are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. 2 Timothy 3.14 2 Timothy 3.14 three, 3.4 I mean 3.4 2 Timothy 3.4 I'm going to start with verse 1 because it's bringing us right down to where we are today. We're finally in the last days. This is the last days of the church. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their selves, own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. Now, were these religious people? Well, look at the next verse. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. They profess a religious profession, and they don't know God. That's simple as that. Denying the power. They don't know anything about the Son. They don't know anything about the Father. They don't know anything about the doctrines of the word, but they profess. They have a form of godliness, and it's terrible times we're living in right now. Now, we are said to hate God and to be enemies if we rebel against him and disobey his laws. That's the way the scriptures teach. And here in our verse, our respects to God are interpreted and judged by our respects to his law. It says, by this, God measures our love and hatred to himself. It is enmity to God because it is not subject to the law of God. You want to read our scripture one more time? You got your ribbon there? Just turn over to Romans 8, verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, it's not subject to the law of God. Humans are funny under the eye of a spiritual microscope. We hate God with a double reason. We hate him as a lawgiver, prohibiting our lust by his rules. And then we hate him as an avenger, punishing our disorders. We don't like him because he gives the rules, and we don't like him because of the punishment he says we're going to get. Likewise, we carry on a double war against God, offensive and defensive. The offensive war is when we break his laws. The defensive war is when we slight his word, despise his grace, and resist the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read you Titus 3.3. 3. 
Titus 3, 3. All the T's are together there. Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. For we ourselves also were sometimes, that means in the past, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's where we all come from. Now we give way to that which is evil and impose that which is good, even against the urgings of conscience. How many people have a conscience that they listen to and then say, I don't like it. I'm not going to do that anyhow. Well, I'm going to do it regardless of what my conscience says. Well, the flesh is aggravated when you try to restrain it from what it desires. Look at Romans 6.22. Romans 6.22. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end ever lasting life. You're made free from sin, but until then, you're held in bondage to it. Now, let me give you a few more scriptures to show you the widespread teaching in God's Word about the total depravity of the human heart. First of all, to show men how to boast of their freedom, and when they have none, look at John 8.32. All people will say, hey, I'm not in no bondage. There's no, nothing the matter with our family. Ma, I'm doing fine. What are you talking about, bondage? Well, they did the same thing when our Lord preached. John 8, 32. Our Lord said, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, that's simple enough. But now they, they're going to say, Then answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? They're not in bondage. And at that time, the Roman government was occupying Israel. They were totally in bondage to the Roman government. And here are these enlightened people, religiously inclined to say they were never in bondage. And that's the way the natural heart is. It'll do it every time. Oh, I'm not as bad as such and such. Oh, what are you talking about? My nature is bad. Well, maybe you're not as outwardly bad as somebody else, but how about inwardly? Are you prone? Do you have a lust after God in prayer? Do you lust to keep his law? Of course you don't. You have no lust that way. You lust the opposite. You lust for evil things. Lust has, is a two-way street. You can lust after God, too. And you know what you'd be called? A fanatic. You'd be called nuts. Well, in the same manner, the non-religious boast their freedom by saying that their will is free to choose either good or evil, and so they choose not to be religious. Turn to Jeremiah 13.23. Jeremiah 13.23 We're going to see if a man can choose to do good or evil. 
Here's one of the questions God gives you in his word. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. So it's impossible. A leopard can't change his spots. The Ethiopian can't change his skin. But some try. Some try real desperately to do it. It just don't work. Stay in Jeremiah, but look at Jeremiah 2.25. See how they answer Jeremiah when he speaks to them God's word. Jeremiah 2, verse 25. Withhold thy foot from being unshod and thy throat from thirst, but thou saidest there's no hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. That's something. Absolutely going totally against what God is trying to deliver to them for their own benefit. Look at Jeremiah 4.22. The people with their smart answers. For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children. And they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Jeremiah 7.24 But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in their counsels in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. God's messengers have always had that kind of opposition, no matter where or when. Psalm 2, verse 2 and 3. Psalm 2, 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. You know, that really happened physically. When Pilate and Herod got together, had counsel, see how they could destroy the Lord Jesus Christ, or Pilate was even trying to set him free. They took counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We don't want this man to rule over us. Now, I want to tell you, if the Lord Jesus Christ does not rule over your life, if he does not rule over your mind, if he isn't your king, your beloved, your husband, you're in trouble. You have got to know the Lord Jesus Christ and love him before anything else or you will never, never go to heaven or have eternal life. 
the rules laid down in God's Word is that you're under condemnation, and if you don't know Christ, you'll suffer and die. You'll go to hell, and you'll be there forever and ever. Hell is not a temporary thing. In fact, I've got just printed a new book this week on hell. When you ask for that other one about preparations of the heart, I'll give you the one on hell, too. It is super great. Hell is a reality. Okay. Luke 19.14. Luke 19.14. I just got through quoting that, and I didn't even know this was coming up. But this is what happens. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. You see, the sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ are the words of God who is informing, who is telling people in a story form exactly what they're going to think and say. Every word you read in here has depth of meaning. It wasn't just a story he was telling. He was telling about the whole nation of Israel saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. They did not want the Lord Jesus Christ because they said he was a man. Now the Bible said that he was going to be a man. And Isaiah said a virgin was going to conceive and bear a son. And his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. All those names are going to be called to this son that was born of a virgin. So why didn't they accept him as that? Well, because the human nature will not believe God, I guess. They said, this is this kid that was lived down the street here, worked in his daddy's carpenter shop. We know him. We've watched him grow up. What are you talking about? God. He's no different than we are. But you see, he did no sin. He was different. His blood was different. He did no sin, not even as a baby. How can that be? I don't know. Believe it. Peter who would definitely know all about any fault anybody would have, said he did no sin. He was perfect. Our Lord Jesus Christ stayed perfect, kept the law in a body like yours and mine, with flesh and blood, so that we could have eternal life. That's how you get eternal life, by his righteousness, him keeping the law perfectly. But if he wouldn't have died and paid the price for your sins, he could say, I want to give this person eternal life. But how could you enjoy it if you couldn't go to heaven? If your sins weren't paid for, if you couldn't stand in the presence of God. So he had to also pay for our sins with his blood, and then the two go together. You have eternal life from him, keeping the law perfectly, and you have your sins forgiven, and adoption into God's family because he died for you. That's what Christ did for each and every one of us that believe on him. So how silly not to know him. 
How silly not to take time out in life and get to know him. We've got young people here so concerned about school and where they're going to go and who they're going to date and where they're going to go to the next game. Come on, guys. There's a little girl in the front page of the paper, eight years old, was killed instantly. Did she know she was going to die? No. Who would have ever thought that? You don't know when you're going to go either. And you're old enough to know that you should come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to come as a lost sinner. You've got to see yourself as a needy sinner. You've got to ask God to show you that you're a lost sinner. You don't ever find it out by yourself. Cry to him for mercy. And he'll give you mercy. That's how simple it is. If you beg for mercy and know you need it, you get it. But people that laugh at the message think they've got plenty of time that there's time when you get older you'll be able to get religious. You better forget that because today is a day of salvation and with things happening in Israel the way it is right now, we don't know how soon the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to take us out. So listen to his promise. Listen to his invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That means he will give you eternal rest. But you've got to have a burden and you've got to come to him knowing you need salvation. Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask thy blessing upon our message this morning. Enmity, the natural human heart. Reconciliation, the grace of God sending his own son to be our substitute redeemer. Oh, we thank you for Christ this morning and ask that each heart here will have been